0: A few quick notes before today's episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate it on iTunes or other platforms where you listen. This is a huge part of helping us grow, and it's much appreciated. This podcast is produced by Authentic Form & Function. We're a design and technology studio working in the real estate space. We help developers and architects innovate their work with unique brands, websites, and digital tools. Last year, we launched Amplify, a digital real estate marketing platform that combines high-touch custom design with out-of-the-box real estate marketing technology. Find out more at AuthenticFF.com slash Amplify. Finally, we want to hear from you. Email your feedback and ideas, as well as who else we should speak with, to podcast at AuthenticFF.com.
1: We were the first district in the city that implemented an affordability overlay um, on development, so requiring a higher level of affordability to, to be built locally. We were the first neighborhood in the city that allowed and welcomed a tiny home village for the homeless that sat right in the middle of our district and we worked very closely in partnership with them and were really supportive of initiatives to house the homeless and help get them to jobs and resources.
0: On this episode, I'm speaking with Jamie Gillis, Founder and principal of Centro, a consulting firm which works to support cities and neighborhoods through community-led renewal and reinvestment by exploring their underlying opportunities and challenges. Jamie has been practicing in the community development space for more than 20 years, working in communities of varied sizes, all facing unique challenges. Under her leadership and expertise, Centro has become an internationally sought-after resource for best practices and proven processes in developing thoughtful spaces and enhancing quality of life across communities. Jamie also recently served as the president of the River North Art District in Denver, tackling management of a rapidly changing industrial area through advocacy, policy, programs, and projects. Her work in particular on projects to advance affordability, mobility, and green infrastructure, as well as investments to support and house the homeless community, left a positive impact and shaped a citywide policy. In 2018, driven by a passion to see her adopted hometown of Denver thrive, Jamie then left her role in River North to run for mayor of Denver, taking a two-term incumbent to a runoff election, which we learn more about later in the episode. I'm your host, Chris Arnold. Let's jump right in. Jamie, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So as we uh, jump in, as we get started here, I want you to tell the listeners a little bit about your upbringing and where your roots uh, really come from and, and, and what, where that all started.
1: Yeah, well, I think everybody, given the the work that I've done, has largely been in in bigger cities all over the place. Everybody is often surprised to hear I actually was born and raised in a really small town of about 250 people in rural Iowa. And I was a farm kid. My life was pigs and cows and chickens and um growing sweet corn and soybeans. And that was that was pretty much it. Um I, I like to tell people I I grew up in Mayberry. And it was a pretty quiet and yet really wonderful life, and uh, a lot of family around. And um, my dad actually was very involved. He was also born and raised in that town, and he had served on city council. And then for most of my childhood, actually served as the mayor of that small town. And so, you know, very, very different experience to be the mayor of 250 people uh, versus a large city. But certainly, his passion for community, his passion for people, and the, you know, really the work I saw him do in a small town being mayor means really taking care of people. You know, when the the farmer can't get out to harvest the crops, wrangling people to do that, or when water is in your basement, as the mayor you go and help get it out. So everything about me was um, was really shaped by that, and then by the fact that my mom was a social worker for the state of Iowa. And so her perspective on life was working day to day with people who didn't have a lot and were working really hard to get ahead. And and she was very passionate about the work that she did to support others. And so, you know, I, I really feel like absolutely this childhood shaped my desire to be in the mix on trying to serve others and make life better across the board for all people.
0: One of the things that came out of that strong family unit that I really appreciated, I think is a cool little side story, has to do with the sweet corn business that you started as a little girl. (laughs) Walk us through what that was all about and kind of uh, what you learned with that experience.
1: Well, you know, it was fantastic. And my dad, particularly, was big on. He was sort of a serial entrepreneur or right? I always uh he had a woodworking business that was very successful, but he was always delving into other lines of business remodeling cars etc et etc cetera, et cetera. and he from a very young age you know really instilled in us that we we needed to find ways to make money and stay busy and if we wanted things that's how we got things and so um At the age of seven, I decided to start a sweet corn business. So we grew sweet corn on our family farm, just that surrounded our house. So when it was sweet corn season in July and August, I would get up at 6 a.m. and go harvest some sweet corn. And my dad's business was on a highway, so it had great visibility. And so he actually took my bicycle and welded a hitch on it and built me this little trailer so that I could get up pick the corn put the corn in the trailer hook the wagon to my bike and i would bike up you know it was probably about 6 blocks or so to the highway and um made a little sign and i would sit out there and sell till i was out of corn and then ride my bike back and and fill up and do it all over again and um you know a dollar for a baker's dozen at that time it wasn't a lucrative business but it it definitely taught me that you know if you want to if you want to win uh, you have to be willing to do the dirty work as well as you know get the paycheck at the end of the day
0: yeah well, I'm curious living in in such a small town, I think it was two fifty or three hundred people or so at that time yeah I'm curious what opportunities you had growing up to experience any larger cities, you know traveling around, family trips. What opportunities did you have um, as a as a youngster?
1: Yeah, I mean, my family and I did travel, but we weren't, we weren't extensive travelers. And um, you know, we would, we were fairly close to Minneapolis and Des Moines. So we would do that for the odd baseball game or the Iowa State Fair. And a couple of times during my childhood, we traveled, you know, took road trips to other other places. I remember going to Nashville when I was a kid. But largely we weren't, you know, my family. Themselves weren't really big city people. Now I always loved getting into the cities and seeing the hustle and the bustle and the building, you know, the the great uh, history that was present in these places. But it wasn't necessarily instilled in me by by my family. But what I think really changed my, or maybe accelerated my love of of cities and, and understanding places, is at the age of fifteen sort of out of nowhere really i i had this idea that i wanted to be an exchange student we had a really strong exchange student program at our school and i had become friends with some of the students that had come to live from other countries and and i you know brought it up to my my parents one night and and uh my dad in particular was like yep yep you you need to do that let's do that and so it all i remember it all happening very quickly and then thinking after the fact oh my god what am i what am I signing up for? I just I'm 15 and I've never really been anywhere. I've never really been anywhere alone because I was kind of an introvert. I didn't do a lot of camps or things like that. And here I am. I'm I'm flying to the other side of the world. And and the way the program worked is you you signed up and you could sort of preference places that you wanted to go, and sometimes you got them and sometimes you didn't. And in my case, I, I got a totally unexpected place, which was Finland, hmm. and uh, didn't know anything about Finland at all. Didn't even know where it was, honestly, until I got chosen to go there, and um so here I was, 15, and uh, my parents put me on a plane one day by myself. I flew through, I remember flying through New York and then uh, to Helsinki, and their, uh, a, a family would pick me up and I would go on to live with them. Um, it was a short semester program, so I, I stayed with them for about four months. And it was life-changing. Um, I think... You know I traveled while I was with them, so I got to see some other cities in Europe. But also this kind of awakening to different cultures and different lives and how different places worked just piqued my curiosity in pretty profound ways that I, I think really did change my trajectory in life for sure.
0: Yeah, and, and from my understanding that that experience was really just the tip of the iceberg for you because you ended up going to the University of Iowa. And that travel bug, so to speak, really started to hit you pretty hard. And I know that you had quite a few new experiences during during that time. Did the uh, original sort of 15, 16-year-old exchange student experience uh, really boost those years for you and kind of say, Hey, this is that was a springboard and this is what I want to get into? Um, and then kind of part two of that is where did you end up actually traveling during those college years?
1: Yeah, yeah, you're right. The travel bug bit very hard after that. And I became immensely curious. Um, I remember coming back from Finland then and thinking my whole world had changed and I didn't really fit where I was anymore. And at 16, that's sort of an interesting realization that like you, all of a sudden, all your beliefs and thoughts and structures and all of this were kind of, it was like, well, the world actually works differently. And, and, and there's lots of people out there living their own unique life and i and and that's really i think it was the humanity of it that made me really curious about it, about wanting to see other places and so i remember that when you know as a senior in high school when they do the yearbook thing and they ask you what what do you think you're going to be uh do with your career and i i i was struggling at that point in my life thinking how do I travel and experience things and get paid to do it? And uh, that, I, if if you look at my senior yearbook, it'll it'll show you that I said I wanted to be a travel writer, and so yeah, I went to college and I was just kind of itching to to keep going, and um, so while my other friends were off in Mexico, you know, having spring break, I would spend my spring breaks going abroad, and I did a, a fabulous trip to Paris and France uh, over one spring break and you know just traveled the whole city, took bus tours, did some really cool things. Um, and then a really cool trip to the UK. And my grandfather had served in the war in the UK in a, in a little town called Burry St. Edmund. And he had just recently passed away. Um, and so I was going to the UK and I thought, well, I want to go see where he served. Nobody in my family had ever been there. And, you know, of course, back in those days, Chris we didn't have the internet really to do research. The internet was just being born, but certainly there wasn't a lot on it. And so you're planning from travel books and trying to find phone numbers and phone numbers and phone numbers. And somehow I came across this couple in the UK that lived just across from the old uh, U.S. Air Force Base where my grandfather had been stationed, and they knew all about it. They they knew the history. The, the gentleman had been born and raised in the house that they lived in, and he remembered the Americans there. And so, um, randomly, you know, drove into Barisanemen and met this couple, and they spent the whole day. They got me on the Air Force Base into the barracks, all that sort of stuff, and I got to see where my grandfather had served and. And it was those experiences, you know, that were really defining. I had similar experiences in Paris where friends had, you know, friends that that were living there or exchange students I had known had lived there. And I got to get inside people's personal lives to see how they were living too. And I think that goes back to the Finland experience. It was not just about like, I'm going to a city and I'm going to do the tourist attractions. It was like, I went and I lived another person's life. And I loved doing that. I loved seeing the world through other people's eyes and learning learning from that. And that's what kind of kept changing me, I think.
0: Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And, and it seems like, you actually alluded to this a little bit, but it seems like all of that traveling um, really pushed you towards this idea of a career with connecting with other people, I'll, I'll say for lack of a better phrase. Um, and you were originally thinking about doing a, a writing career, a travel writing career, um, and then you found yourself in TV journalism. Um, let's let's kind of get into your early career, and, and I know there's a couple early stepping stones that involve television, um, marketing, and PR. Walk us through what those experiences were like, and kind of where where they were in the country as we kind of march towards what you're working on today.
1: Yeah. Um, so yes, you're absolutely right that that you know, as I was in college, I was trying to piece together still this question of how do you make a career. Telling stories and traveling, and so journalism felt like the natural direction to go. And I ended up working towards a journalism degree at the University of Iowa. And I think it was in my junior year of college, I um, had gotten an internship at a TV station uh, called KGAN, which was in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And at the time, it was you know, as an internship, I was learning how to do everything from cut tape to shoot video and you know just how the production and all that worked. And then uh, in just after Christmas break of my senior year of college, I got a call from KGAN saying that their morning show producer had left and they wondered if I wanted the job. And so here I was with the job offer, not even with a full degree yet. And while it was challenging, it worked because I would work from 10 p.m. until 7 a.m. Monday through Friday. And then I would Drive back down to Iowa City where I was in school and I would do my classes and somewhere in there find time to sleep. But luckily, college kids don't need don't need a lot of sleep, right? You're (laughs) able to function. So, you know, that was another one of those, like, if you wanna, if you want the the rewards, you gotta do the work. And I just saw it as like, what an amazing opportunity. Here I am with a job and a 401k and a you know health insurance and I'm I'm not don't even have my degree and so I you know really learned a lot by that I was writing stories I was covering breaking news it was an exciting project and I really wanted to know all parts of how the the news got made and and really was interested in being a journalist in front of the camera too. And um, you know, eventually I got that break. I sort of worked my way, way up. I was producing morning show, then I started producing some of the evening shows. And then um actually one day I was just in the newsroom. I was getting ready to go home and um there was a breaking story and all the reporters were out on assignment. And so they just said Jamie put on this put on a coat. We got a coat for you. You're going live on air and <laughs> So, there I was, and that started it all, and then i I started reporting from there on out, and you know that was that was one of those like you learn to face your fears in real time, like there really wasn't any time for me to think about whether I was ready to do it or not. I did it. And the other interesting thing about journalism is you just sort of you get thrown into all these circumstances in which you have to be ready to talk to anybody and ask really tough questions, and you also have to be become an expert on something in a very short period of time and be able to convey that information quickly. So, you know, I was covering, I mean, I covered murder story one day, a fire story the next day. I was at city council covering something the next day. Uh, and you're just every day is different and you're just moving with it. But I think I really got pulled in, in particular, to the, the, the local government stuff. And then I was there for the 2000 election, which I was up all night, you know, covering um, in Iowa, covering the the hanging Chad stories and uh, the unknowns of what was going to happen with the presidential election. And between that and like covering the city council stuff and understanding how city council worked and how things were getting done or not done, I really was like, this is where this, you know, where stuff happens. Like I'm right now at the level where I'm just telling the story, but I want to be part of the story. And and how do we get to that somehow?
0: It's really interesting because, you know, from a a self-described introvert, which you could, you know, Listeners can't tell that at all right now. I've never been able to tell that personally, Jamie. But I think <laughs> one of the kind of cool things about this this time in your life, it seems like this is where you were, as you said, thrown into everything. You had to become an expert on uh, these little things, new things every single day. I feel like the fire was starting to catch at this point. And I think it was right around 9-11 or just prior, you ended up mm-hmm. having another opportunity uh, in a related field, which was marketing and PR. And I think kind of the two at the the two opportunities at the at the station and the marketing agency sort of overlapped but this led into yet another opportunity with a nonprofit how did all that unfold at that time as you were sort of kind of spreading your wings so to speak
1: yeah yeah i think you captured it correctly i um you know i definitely my i was starting to shake off my my fears and my fearlessness was beginning to emerge and i was you know finding ways to navigate that and and then yeah i you know i was as i mentioned the news business was a perfect one for me at the perfect time in my life in terms of i think cracking me open a little bit and pushing me to you know to do things that were outside of my comfort zone but i i think i knew early on that that probably wasn't the career that was going to you know keep me content for the rest of my life like there just wasn't enough there for me to grab on to. I wanted to be in the mix of things. And so, yes, it was just before 9-11 that um, a local PR uh, agency reached out and offered me a position. And their main client was the city of Cedar Rapids. And so now I was in this kind of... Tra- I-, I saw it as a transition. I didn't know that marketing or PR was also my calling, but I thought, well, now I get to be in the mix, at least trying to help shape the stories and the messaging and be you know, be in there um, as things were were happening. And that was also a really interesting time. So I had just started and then 9-11 happened and there was all sorts of stuff um, going on. We all remember that time. And then there was also this time after 9-11 when I think we all were trying to figure out how do we shift and shape and what's going to happen. And for the city... Uh, particularly, they were really working to try to revitalize their their heart, their downtown, their core, their riverfront area. And that's what I got pulled into a lot of messaging on is, um, is how do we do that? How do we make this a welcoming place for everybody? And there was also a downtown um, called a Downtown Business Improvement District, their um, downtown organization that was very active in the work. And I kind of got pulled into that. And it was um, around 2003 that the director of that organization was getting ready to leave for another opportunity. And they reached out and asked me if I would be interested in coming on board to run that organization. And I was, um, of course, I was just blown away by the opportunity here. I was about 26 years old, never had run a nonprofit, uh, didn't really know much about special districts. Uh, we were also running tax increment financing. I mean, I had to learn what that was. You know, I knew all of these things at a high level, and now all of a sudden, I was I was in the weeds. I had two boards, I had lots of different budget flows. We were doing a massive downtown plan, massive downtown streetscape revitalization of the riverfront, and I found myself in the lead on that. And so, um, you know, I didn't I didn't have a roadmap to navigate all that. Um, I was thrown into it. And so and so I just navigated best I could. I did what I I took what I had learned, I think, from all my past experiences. And I I met people where they were. Um, I got to know them, I got to understand challenges that businesses were having or property owners were having. I tried to bring people together where I saw opportunity. Um, and I also really loved straddling the public and private sectors because in that role in the downtown organization, I was sort of both. Um, you know, we had this special district, which is considered a quasi-governmental entity because it's a taxing district. And I saw that, but we also were a community organization. And so I wore that hat. And this kind of interesting thing where I didn't have to be a government player and I wasn't solely a private sector player. I was always in my brain figuring out how do we put these two things together to be effective, shaped very early on the philosophy that would continue my you know career over the over the following years. And so I think it also taught me that one of my strong suits is um bringing diverse groups of people together and trying to find common ways out of a problem because that was the only way we were going to get things done there in that time.
0: Yeah. Wow. So let's let's kind of let's pause there and kind of put a pin in where we are in the in the story. So this is right around 2001, 2002 you got started and I would say after a a flurry of experiences that you've sort of been thrust into, but then also chosen to pursue. Uh, there came a bit of a turning point around 2006 where you ended up making your way to Denver, um, both to pursue your career at a consulting firm, but then also to continue your education with a master's degree at CU. Taking those four or five years of experience from those those previous roles and positions at a at a city level, and then moving to Denver, what did you feel like you learned? Um, kind of taking that next step in your career and, and life, moving to a different city, a bigger city, and, and a new market. A few years later,
1: well, Cedar Rapids gave me this broad platform to learn. A lot about a lot of different things. Um, you know, in addition to working on the downtown pieces, I was very civically involved. I sat on the chamber board, nonprofit boards. I also was very involved in looking at our city's governance and I got involved in a movement to change the form of government, which which also, you know, piqued my interest in getting my master's, as you mentioned, at CU, um, a master's in public administration, because I started to think there's all these opportunities to make change. And from a city, you know, I'm very interested in kind of the city management perspective and um, and how we evolve cities strategically and thoughtfully. So, you know, that's what uh, led me to make the move. Um, the interesting thing was for me, that move was powerful in that I felt like I'd built this really strong base of knowledge in Cedar Rapids, but my knowledge was all based on one place and one way, you know, one kind of set of doing things and one culture, right? Every city, every community has its own culture. And so what the work that I then did in Denver uh, when I started working for the consulting firm and simultaneously getting my master's. So I was kind of getting all these new, you know, all of my theories and ideas were being questioned from the schoolwork. And then also at the same time, I was traveling for all of my consulting work and I was going all across the country, you know, from working in Philadelphia to Santa Monica to midwestern cities, and uh, traveling every week, and we were working primarily in those days downtown revitalization. I mean, the movement really in the 2000s was clean, safe, and friendly. Let's fix the broken windows. You know, let's clean this place up so people feel safe coming down here. And my particular role in the consulting was going in and doing strategy. Uh, Where we needed to focus resources, and then helping identify where resources could come from—sometimes from creating special districts, sometimes from partnerships with the with the government or grants or whatever—and I was just doing that on repeat, like over and over and over, in cities all across the country. And so, you know, that was the big learning thing for me. All of a sudden, I now had a really strong base of knowledge, but my knowledge was being challenged, like. The how and the where and the what, you know, was challenging how I think about things and how I approach different groups of people, um, and that for me was really a really powerful learning experience. But you know, it also did bring some awareness as you started to work across the country that there were these big models of downtown improvement that um, were doing two things really. One, I started to feel like you know, and when anybody who travels all the time for work to different places knows this, you start to feel like I could be in Philadelphia or San Diego or Santa Monica or Denver or whatever in their downtown. And I was sort of in the same place. They'd all, you know, there was the same stores, there were the same light fixtures, the same brick pavers, the same benches. Like it was really, the focus had so much been on let's clean it up let's let's get the homeless out of here you know let's fix the broken windows let's make this look really pretty that somewhere along the way they were losing their soul and i remember in those days way back then i did a podcast with with somebody that was i think i we called it don't let your city lose its grit and people at the time were like what are you talking about we're trying to get rid of the grit you know but it turned out to be sort of true i think people you know were also beginning to feel that Places were beginning to become homogenous, but also that yeah. we weren't actually dealing with some of the social issues that occur in cities. That um, we are just kind of pushing, you know, kicking that can down the road and pushing the problem out. And so that was really a challenge for me in that early work in Denver.
0: That early work too seems to have set the stage for what became uh, Centro, which in which is a firm you started in 2009. And it's really become the heart of your community planning and development work. Definitely in the last decade or so. I want to get into that because that's a really meaty part of the discussion and a really great part of the discussion because it spans uh, from Singapore to Denver and beyond. But let's start with kind of the origin story of Centro, but then also talk about this opportunity you had in Singapore.
1: Yeah, so, you know, that the work and the realizations I was having and the work that I was doing, I went to the principal of the firm I was working with at the time and said, you know, I just feel like there is more that we could be doing. I feel like we need to get more into the the soul and the culture of communities. I feel like the work we are doing could be much more nuanced. I also feel like we are selling places short by just focusing on the city center and not looking at, you know, the neighborhoods and the the entire uh, surrounding areas too. And it was those things that were really, I felt I was growing very passionate about. And, you know, at the time the firm was really like, well, we're focused on this thing and that's what we're gonna do. And this is how we do our work. And so I decided to go out on my own, big move. Um, I I didn't go with any clients, you know? And so this is 2009, just post, I mean, we were still recovering from the recession and decided to step out on my own and just take this philosophy and see if I could turn it into a business. And I think anybody who starts a business knows the, you know, the first place you start is you call every single human you know um, in the professional world and let them know what you're interested in and see if there are opportunities. And I had served on the International Downtown Association Board. In fact, I was still serving on the board um, when I left to start my own company. And that had been a great connector for me because I was really involved and there really truly was an international group of folks that were all working on these same issues all over the world. And um, as part of that, number one, I'd met quite a few interesting people who were doing consulting work all over the world. And, and you know those were some of the first people I reached out to as well in my work because I still had in my mind, Chris, <laughs> going back to wanting to be a travel writer. I had loved traveling the U.S. But I still had in my mind that there was something for me beyond, you know, U.S. boundaries, and that I was really interested in some of the work I was starting to see emerge in Europe too, and beyond. And it was also around that same time that I was at a conference with the International Downtown Association, and a, a delegation of Singaporean uh, individuals from from the Singaporean government had come to the conference and were there to learn. But they also, um, I had met with them there, and they also had expressed that. They were um, considering putting out an RFP to um, look at how to do, they weren't exactly sure. They were interested in how do you do public-private partnerships? How do you perhaps do special districts? They didn't have any uh, legislation to do things like that. What kind of tools are being used to revitalize areas? So um, they were there to learn and, and listen. And I had stayed in touch with them. And so shortly after I started my own business, this RFP came out. And I had connected with, at the time, uh, a colleague in the UK and a colleague in South Africa who were doing similar work to what I was doing, and said, what do you think? Are you going to go after this? And we all got to talking and thought, you know, really, um, Singapore is such a unique place. Uh, Formerly part of the British Empire, only got its independence in 1969. So it is it is very Asian, uh, very multicultural, but also very founded in kind of British law, and it's it's a really interesting mix of of that. And so we thought, you know, what would be most powerful potentially is to put together a multicultural, you know, team, a multinational team of which, uh, you know, we have lots of different perspectives represented on the team that can. Look at Singapore and help advise them through that lens through those lenses. And so we um put together a proposal, and uh, you know, I believe that Singapore got over a dozen proposals and ended up getting shortlisted against my former company that I had just left. So that was an interesting moment. and um, Singapore came to us and said, Look, it's down to you two. We've done the preliminary interviews. We like both your proposals. Uh, we'd like to invite you to come to Singapore and spend some time with us um, and get to know you. And you know, it, as soon as possible. But we we're not going to pay for that. So we need you to do it on your own dime. And my thought was, first of all, knowing. And having done research on Asian culture, I, I recognized the importance that they place on face-to-face interaction, on business things. Uh, but second, I thought, well, what do I have to lose? You know, I don't have any money. I really didn't have that many clients at that time. But it's a trip to Singapore. It's a learning opportunity. Even if I lose, I've, I've done it, and I can say I've done it. And so we all went to Singapore um, and basically walked into the boardroom in the government offices met the entire team and they looked across the table and said we thank you for coming you've got the job. And so again another powerful learning experience about the importance of kind of putting yourself out there and and knowing what's important to other people as a way to you know to to, to bring things together and make things happen. And so that launched a really massive turning point for my career. I would go to Singapore about every 6 weeks and stay for 2 to 3 weeks at a time. And at first was just going back and forth between Singapore and Denver. Um, Still doing some work in Denver, um, meantime. But then I also, I started, Stopping in the UK, and my UK partner was starting to plug me into some work um, in the UK. And so then I would kind of do this Denver, Singapore, London route and stay, you know, a few weeks in each place. And that was pretty much my life from 2010 to 2013 or so. I was never in one place for more than a couple of weeks at a time. Um, And I was doing work in all those locations simultaneously and um, interesting challenges. And again, you know, I, I have to go back to this this thing that has always made me so curious is that it was really an opportunity for me to like delve into the culture and the way things work and then have to reframe the way I did my work and thought about my work. And so it really challenged me at every turn to think about what I was doing and why I was doing it that way.
0: Hey listeners, just a quick reminder that today's episode is brought to you by our firm, Authentic Form and Function. I wanted to let you know about an internal research project we recently completed where we analyzed the digital strategy of over 75 commercial real estate projects across multiple asset and project classes. We distilled this research into an ebook called The Real Estate Website Blueprint, which you can download for free on our website at authenticff.com slash blueprints. In it, we provide several strategies and tactics you can use on your next project to better position in the market, increase project awareness, and accelerate leasing. To download the ebook, be sure to visit authenticff.com slash blueprint. Well, as we kind of ruminate on that chapter of your career, I'm looking ahead to the next chapter, which is a big one, and that has to do with with more involvement and more work in Denver. And specifically, there is a district um, in Denver that emerged in the last decade called Rhino or River North. Um, I've lived in Denver now for just about 15 years, so I, I saw that area grow from, from nothing to what it is today. And you ultimately had a really big impact in that project, um, in that area of, of town. I'm curious how Singapore led... To a more close knit involvement back in Denver, and I know that there's kind of a unique one, two, three kind of connection point um, that brought you back to Denver. But but what was that, and um, what was that transition then back into Denver like for you after doing all that traveling?
1: Yeah, it. Um, you know, I, I, as I mentioned, I was I was back in Denver. I I had a home in Denver, and so I would be back every so often. And I did my best to try to stay connected to. What was happening locally. And I don't even really remember 100% how it came about, but at one uh, juncture, I got invited to speak on a panel um, that was being, I think, facilitated by a group called Downtown Colorado Inc. And the conversation was about revitalization through culture and the arts. You know, how we're places really looking at, at economic development and, and whatnot differently and using art and culture to, to change and reinvigorate spaces and places. Um, and I had gotten invited because you know people knew the work that I was doing in Singapore, the work I was doing in the UK. And so they were uh, curious just to see how what I had learned and how that could be plugged in. So I spoke on this panel. Um, and at that panel was a woman by the name of Ginger White. And she was, at the time, um, the second in command at arts and venues at the city of Denver. She now leads that department. But um, she was working on a couple things. Um, She had been working with the state on uh, state legislation around the establishment of creative districts, and also locally was um, trying to understand how the city could support these kind of creative districts that had emerged through Denver at the time, there were eight. There was like Santa Fe and Rhino and the Golden Triangle and and a number of others that had self-designated as arts districts. And she was looking for some strategy around that, so it was timely. Um, she then reached out to me shortly thereafter and said, you know, the I think it was in in 2011 that Governor then Governor Hickenlooper. Passed the creative district's legislation, signed it, and handed it over to the Office of Economic Development and International Trade at the state. And that office then was like, okay, there was no, you know, no instruction about what is a creative district, how do you certify it, you know, what, how do you help these districts, how do we direct tools and resources. So the state brought me on board, and that ended up being about a five year contract with the state of Colorado to oversee, launch, develop, and refine the Creative Districts program. And it was through that that I first met Rhino because simultaneously Ginger was having me do some kind of high level strategy work, just going and meeting with all the different uh, creative districts in Denver to see where they were and how they could be supported. And so that was that first moment. And I did a little bit of strategy work in 2011 but you know anybody who is in Denver in 2011 and who now knows Rhino wouldn't have. It's it's such a different place. There there was very little happening at that point. We were still crawling out of the recession, but it was ripe for something. We knew that. We saw that. Um, we just didn't know when that was going to hit. So you know I carried on with my work. I kind of had touch points with Rhino. I stayed in touch with Rhino's uh, leaders, leadership. And then um, it was around the end of 2013, my Singapore work was winding down. And I was mostly full-time in the UK at that point doing some work. And I kind of hit that point that I think a lot of people do who travel is that I just felt like I was tired of living out of a suitcase. And I I needed to put roots down and stay put and focus. And so I came back to Denver um, in January of 2014. And thought I would just sort of reestablish myself and try to wrap my head around where where do I take my consulting business now? What what have I learned from the last few years, and how does that emerge in new work? And I managed, I I think I you know posted something on social media that I was back in Denver and excited to see people. And literally, I think it was the same day, Rhino, uh, the head of the Rhino Art District at the time, let re- reached out to me and said. Uh, so glad you're back. Um, there's this big meeting happening tomorrow, and I don't really know what's going on, but there's a lot of chaos in Rhino right now between the development community and the art community. And if you're willing, I would love to have you just join me at the meeting and listen in and see what your thoughts are. And so I landed in this meeting, which basically, I mean, City was there. All the major developers and property owners at the time, and Rhino were there, and then some art district representatives. And I was sitting there listening, and there was a lot of infighting going on about what is the future of this place. We want to take it this direction. We want to go this direction, you know. And I sort of spoke up and shared some thoughts. And I think everybody at the time thought, "Who are you? <laughs> you know, get get out of here. Let us carry on with our work." But I, I shared some thoughts about how we might be able to all get on the same page and accomplish everybody's goals. And that then immediately turned into some work where I got hired to facilitate getting everybody on the same page and creating a game plan for River North. And at the time, I mean, the reason for all of this was that development pressure was heating up there. But, you know, the mayor at the time had named Rhino, the area basically between Union Station and the airport, which was getting a new rail line to be opening soon, they had named that a corridor of opportunity, and that had created this flurry of activity where, you know, the city was committing basically to invest resources, and anytime that happens, the private sector also wants to be where the city money is going and leverage that, and and so the city saw that in order for them to effectively invest, they needed the private sector to be on the same page, not fighting against each other. And so that was my role. I was hired solely to bring it to come in and try to navigate that private interest and the public sector interest and find a common way forward
0: for everybody. Something you mentioned to me is is your experience and involvement in Rhino with the bid creation process for a community like this, a development, greater development project like this. Um, how, how was that approached in Rhino? I, I know... In the early days, you've really resonated uh, with the fact that everyone was on the same page. It felt great. You all were going to be protectors of sort of the water and gentrification and artists. And um, from what you've told me, it's been, you know, it started out as a really great thing. Did anything change when you went into that bid creation process? Or did you feel like your involvement was, was changing during that time as you got deeper and deeper into Rhino?
1: Well, you know, the bid creation process itself was a pretty wild and and very interesting and frankly fulfilling process. I mean, um we were as we started to have these conversations about getting everybody on the same page, we were finding common ground in that everybody, the city, the developers, the artist community, um everybody wanted this to be something very special and different. We wanted to not just become an extension of downtown Denver, we wanted to build on the roots of the place, on that kind of industrial um, her- uh, component of the place, on the creative component of the place, and we wanted to use that mindset to think about how we do everything differently and you know you mentioned protection of water, like we were big advocates of doing things of you know water quality the district is situated on the river. So how do we uh, locally impact and clean up water that's going into the river? We were very focused on how we work with the homeless community that was there to not push them out, but like how we creatively integrate them into the work that we do, give them meaningful opportunity. How do we support the artists and keep the artists at the core? So in those days when we were creating the district, And trying to get everybody on the same page to support a district, it was a pretty profound time because everybody was like on the same page with doing things very differently. You know, we were in a large sense flipping business improvement districts, which had largely been used in these downtown districts to do clean, safe, and friendly and, you know, kind of just push things out of sight. We were taking that same tool and saying, how can we use that same tool? But actually, we don't want to just push things out of sight, we want to tackle hard issues, hard problems, and put resources to doing that. And we think that will make the district better. And so that time in the creation of the concept and getting the funding in place was very strong. and I think we also reveled in the fact that we were also trying to challenge the city at every single turn. Uh, you know, city not, Denver is not different than a lot of other cities, but cities have ways of doing things. They have ways of building streets, ways of, you know, zoning and all this sort of stuff. And we wanted to challenge that at every step to try to do things one step better. And we were all really proud of those opportunities that we took to do that um, and and to really push harder for. For new ideas to be introduced to Denver that hadn't been done before, and for them to be introduced in the Rhino Art District.
0: Yeah, I want to get into what is maybe a little bit more of a difficult part of the the experience that you had working with Rhino and 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 some of the negativity that uh, you know maybe understandably came with the challenges of developing Rhino of working alongside developers in the city. What were some of the hot button topics that came up or swirled around during your time working with River North? And how do you feel like you were able to navigate those those challenges and issues?
1: Well, certainly, um gentrification, affordability, homelessness were, you know, at the top of the conversation from the get-go. And you know, the dynamics of the way places change, I, to put it in perspective, when we started, you know, when I first was introduced to Rhino back in 2011, this was a place that still had unpaved roads, no sidewalks, really almost anywhere, largely huge industrial buildings that were many of which were just sitting vacant. And land at that time in 2011 was selling for anywhere from 20 to 25 bucks bucks a square foot. Today, by contrast, so about 10 years later, uh, land sells for about $400 Four hundred to four hundred fifty dollars a square foot for dirt. So the change, just to kind of put in perspective how profound it has been. That level of change doesn't happen without without conflict. You know, without challenges. And we knew how fast things were gonna. We knew things were gonna happen fast. We didn't know how fast they were gonna happen. And so as we were getting, you know, getting the the districts up and running, and we had resources to try to start to tackle these things, things were happening so fast. But we were really trying hard. We were, uh, you know, we were the first district in the city that implemented a, an affordability overlay um, on development, so requiring a higher level of affordability to to be built locally. We were the first neighborhood in the city that allowed and welcomed a tiny home village for the homeless that sat right in the middle of our district, and we worked very closely in partnership with them, and were really supportive of initiatives to house the homeless and help get them to jobs and resources. We were trying very hard to engage with the neighborhoods to address this concerns of gentrification, which, you know, again, the gentrification piece, I think, was was probably the most difficult piece, um, exacerbated by, I believe it was in 2016 or 2017, but you know, one of the businesses, Inc. Coffee, that was in Rhino, kind of flippantly putting a, a sidewalk board out one day that said happily gentrifying the neighborhood since 2014.
0: Mm, I remember this, yeah.
1: Yeah, it was the day before Thanksgiving. I remember, uh, you know, it was, uh, and it blew up. Um, It blew up internationally. I mean, I had friends the next day from Singapore and London and people all over the country sending me, oh my God, you know, what is this? What is happening? And I found myself, you know, in Rhino, the art district, find themselves at at the center of all that. And I think the challenge is that, you know, we, I, our whole organization was, we were focused and trying to invest resources to tackle some of these complex issues that come with change and growth. But, you know, the administration didn't really wanna touch that. The city administration didn't. You know, when we did the the homeless village, for example, we had partnered with the Denver Homeless Organizations, and we had had in 2016 this conversation called Move Along to Where? Because largely the city at that point was just you know, kind of pushing people around. And we came out of that saying, you know what, we wanna do this tiny home village. We wanna put it right in the middle of River North, We want to, which the location that was selected was right across from the new rail station that had just opened uh, connecting the airport and DIA. And I mean, the city was not pleased about that. They were not pleased because They did not want that to be the visual that people saw when they got off in River North, which is this big investment area for them. They did not really know how to or want to touch the gentrification issue. They were largely sort of putting their hands in the air saying, there's nothing we can do. This is just the natural evolution of things. But we know there's a lot they could do. They could have done a lot more in terms of requirements around development and working with those neighborhoods who are seeing profound increases in their own taxes and thus being displaced on supporting those increased costs that were coming with that. But there just really, there really wasn't a lot that was happening. And we felt to a certain extent that, you know, we had the mayor and the city leaders coming out and they were getting their pictures taken in front of the murals and rhino. We were showing up in commercials. And yet there was no real interest in even touching the hard things that were happening. And I think I certainly felt out alone on an island because even my board was struggling with, well, if the city doesn't want to do it, how are we going to do anything? I mean, large, everything we had to do really had to be approved by the city. And so we were stuck. You know, We were sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place in which the administration was staying away from it. The community was coming after us and, and me sometimes in particular, and there really wasn't any tool I had available to me to answer their questions or concerns.
0: Yeah, I imagine that would be really hard to be pulled into the headlines like that with, uh, by and large, the public really only understanding or maybe even seeing just one side of the story. So it's really interesting to hear kind of a, I don't know, more of a behind-the-scenes take on all things at play because there's clearly more than one thing happening, more than one thing at play at once and certainly more than one way to sort of present the information, uh, especially as it was happening in real time for you at that time. So I'm, I'm actually... Really thankful that you were able to dive into that a little bit for us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. yeah it was a, it was a really tough time and um, you know tough to navigate what to say, what to do when you feel helpless, right You want to do so much and you feel like you, ha- you should have the tools to do so much and there just wasn't you know without the city being on board, there just was just so very little that we could do to tackle these massive massive issues for the community.
0: Well, I want to do a quick reset here and kind of a deep breath after all that. By 2018, you ended up deciding to, to pivot and run for the mayor of Denver against Michael Hancock. And certainly some of your experiences with, with Rhino and working with the city, I think, sparked that idea. Mm-hmm. Was this primarily a move because of what you experienced in Rhino? Or did you always have uh, an interest in politics and sort of uh, maybe following in your, in your father's footsteps a bit?
1: I think you know again what I learned from my childhood and what my dad taught me was that community always comes first you always take care of community first and I couldn't do that anymore you know I, I couldn't do that in my role in rhino because I wasn't equipped with the tools to do it and also you know I started to understand that in this city and it, it I'm you know I'm sure it's like this in a lot of cities this is just my particular experience But certainly in Denver, it it felt like if you weren't kind of on the inner circle of the administration and, and all of that, you didn't even really get to play the game. You know, there was certainly this, while I was doing the work in Rhino and there were big things happening, there was always this, you know, great job, Jamie, and, you know, come to this event and that event. When I started to push on some of the harder stuff, I began to see another side of things, you know, and there was... There was a particular moment regarding a homeless conversation that I had with, you know, the mayor wasn't there, but it was the mayor's chief of staff and and some other folks from the city. And we came forward and said, look, we got to tackle some of these issues that are occurring. And we, you know, Rhino wants to partner with some of these other neighborhood organizations. We'll put some money in. We We would love it if the city would Partner with us and would work on some creative solutions. Let's not just sweep people away. Let's actually work on figuring out what we can do to help these people. And um, you know, the mayor's chief of staff said, "No, do not ever bring it up. We are not ever meeting about this again. The conversation is over." And he walked out of the room. And it was done in kind of this threatening way. Like, yeah, when as long as you're doing the murals and the development stuff, you know, you're fine. Keep doing your thing but do not cross the line, you know, do not cross the line and try to challenge what we're doing here. And that was a weight and awakening for me. i had seen lots of little things, but for me, it was like, okay, um, clearly if we actually want to make change here, we've got to be bolder and bigger. And so I, you know, initially started talking with some other people that were considering potentially running for mayor and those people never quite got there. And you know, it was a late game decision for me, but I I think, and it sounds cliche, but I literally did wake up one day thinking I've done all I can do within my power in River North. And if I really do feel this passionate about trying to change things, then this is the only step to take. Even if I don't win, I have at least made the effort to go and change the narrative about what needs to happen. And that was it. As soon as I decided it was done and I was ready to go.
0: What was the experience like actually campaigning and going through the process of, you know, going up against, you know, I I hesitate to say adversary, but you know, (laughs) someone who is, who is, you know, in, in a position of power, has a lot of money behind him. Um, Was that, was that a challenge in, in more ways than one? Did you get discouraged along the way? Were there positive and negatives that came from that experience? Um, Kind of, where does that leave you looking back um, in retrospect?
1: Well, you know, hands down, it was one of the most rewarding and eye-opening things I've ever done. I I loved the campaigning part. Um, I loved being out in the community. And after having gone through some kind of what I would describe as dark experiences in Rhino, um, and ever, after having really been at the epicenter of those really really tough gentrification conversations, I got out into the community and I saw a different you know a different perspective. I I met people of, you know, all types all over the the city and heard their stories and I loved it. You know, my faith in people was restored I think. Um and that people are fundamentally good and that you know, again, it goes back to the basics of growing up in a small town. They just want to know that their needs are somehow going to be met or that they're going to there's going to be help for them um somewhere if they need it. And so that for me was was wonderful, and largely the campaign, you know, I would say I was on the campaign trail for a total of, I think, six months. The first five months before the first election were, you know, up until the final weeks before that, where I think it was clear I was starting to become a threat, were largely fine. You know, they were, it was hard work, but it was really interesting work. I was learning a lot, hearing a lot, you know, building my platform out, all of that. It was a different. Game when we got into the runoff. And I think that's where I saw the dark side of politics is that almost immediately, once the mayor and I advanced to the runoff election in May of 2019, I saw the power of money and the inner circle in Denver. You know, I was outspent 10 to 1 in the runoff. I had just under a million dollars. The mayor had close to $10 million. And money buys elections. I mean, at the end of the day, they were digging for dirt and calling people in my past and you know, looking for ways to tell a, a different storyline about this person who kind of had emerged from nowhere to take this incumbent mayor to a runoff. And they ultimately spent a lot of that money trying to turn it into a race issue. And just the the reality was you you can't overcome that when you have that much money. And we had so very little. I mean, we could barely get a commercial on television. He had you know, commercials running every five minutes on every channel. So it wasn't there is a very it's very it becomes very hard to change the narrative in a situation like that. And unfortunately, you know, when people are busy and they're they're looking for answers and they don't have time to maybe dig in and do research, that that narrative drives a lot of votes. And then in his case, it it drove him to a win.
0: Well after the election, I know that you took some time off and you were kind of rethinking, where do I go next? Right. I think there was a that was a pretty uh, exhausting period of your of your career, um, and if I if I do say so myself, I mean, thinking back the last fifteen years or so of your career has been pretty busy, uh, full of a lot of change and travel and experience. This, I think, allowed you to sort of reset and look at your business, Centro, and, and think about how you wanted to venture into the next phase, which, which brings us really to the last couple of years and up to today. I'm curious how you're approaching this new phase of your business. And how do you look at impact and community building now moving forward?
1: Yeah, that the time after the election, you know, I I um I took really about 6 months of uh, just reflecting and regrouping and there was a lot to process there, you know, having run so hard for 6 months. It was not only about processing that that loss and the campaign itself, it was about you know all of this knowledge and insight I gained from talking to people all over the city and the tough conversations I'd had and the debates and and thinking through all of that had I had to figure out what I did with that and you know I had learned so much from all my work I'd learned so much from Rhino but I really just I had no passion for getting back to you know the basic business I was doing before which was bids or you know creating special districts or you know, whatever. I couldn't just shift back into, well, I'll go do what I was doing before mode. Um, and the big challenge for me was how, you know, how do I pivot and and how do I actually make a difference? And so, you know, the world works in mysterious ways. I, I say all the time, I, I sort of just sat with that for a while and started to share with some people and colleagues how I was feeling and that I was really interested in working on how given strong government structure, you know, I felt like I'd seen, I'd always felt like these community organizations and bids were powerful, but I'd seen that there were limits to even that power when, when you have a city government that isn't willing to work with you. And so how do you turn that into something where you can go and help people help cities reshape the work that they're doing? And about that time I had, um, been contacted by a colleague who was doing some work in Las Vegas. And they said um, to me, you know, we're doing some work on on some retail stuff in Las Vegas, but we were having a conversation with the city. And they are sort of shifting their mindset. And they really are wanting to do equity work. And they're focused on the historic west side, which is their historic uh, Black community. Um, And they had, you know, three or four really bad failed attempts to work with the community and and get in there and do some revitalization and the past. And they don't want to miss up again. And I suggested that they talk to you. And so um, this whole city team, the whole city manager's team and the council person came to Denver um, and spent some time with me. And I shared with them my thoughts and my insight and what I had learned from the campaign. And I took them to Uh, our communities of color and talk to them about challenges and things that I would have done differently as mayor. And, and so they said, you know, we want you to come on board. We want you to figure out how to help these communities in our city have a strong voice, how we reshape our approach, how we, how we use new tools, um, how we undo systemic racism in our structures and how we build Communities that are resilient going into the future. And, and I just thought, wow, these are my people. <laughs> you know, I've found my place. And I can tell you, I've now been working with the city for, for about a year. Um, and I'll be working with them through 2021 as well. And that work has led to other work, um, some local. I've been doing some work for Global looking at equitable development and impacts of development in that community. Other places in the country and either international, even international work. I'm doing some work back in London now as they face also some interesting resiliency challenges, partially because of the pandemic, partially because of Brexit. And so now I'm in this new set of work, which seems to be again kind of creeping into the international side, but taking all of these experiences where I feel like the pandemic also, you know, I was starting this work before the pandemic hit, but the pandemic. And and the racial protests and, and riots and conversations that emerged after George Floyd have broken open a new opportunity where communities who I feel largely weren't that interested in having some of these equity and race conversations before are suddenly open to them. And they're thinking about you know, the bottom has fallen out of our economy and our people are suffering. We have to invest here in those people. We have to invest in doing things differently, and so I've now found myself in this interesting moment where you know the work I'm doing is being informed real time by what is happening to people, and we're working to reshape new policy and tools. and um, And it's just been, you know, my heart feels full again because I feel like I'm actually uh, doing work that that I'm passionate about that gets me out of bed every morning.
0: I love that, Jamie. As as we begin to wrap up here, I, I'm I know this is going to be a big question, but I, I'm really curious to get your take on it. You know, let's say that there's you know even just one person listening that you've struck a chord with, and your story really resonates um, with them, uh, and they're they're inspired to take that first step to help build a better community or get more involved. Um, where would you tell an individual, or maybe even someone that works for an organization, t- to even begin? Like, what are a couple First steps that you could recommend to the listeners?
1: Well, one thing that I that started my drive to, to create Centro, um, I mentioned earlier was this focus on neighborhoods. And I think one of the big things that we have seen over the years um, in American planning systems, anyway, is that we largely do policy on massive citywide scales. And so you have zoning shifts or economic tools or whatever being passed citywide and there is very little recognition of the nuance of of neighborhoods you can't help neighborhoods with citywide tools that are applied uniformly to everybody because we still live in cities that because of redlining poverty is still concentrated communities of color are still concentrated and so those people have not had for a long time, what other communities and neighborhoods have. I'm passionate about the fact that the only way to address specific issues is to go to the neighborhood level and approach it from a nuanced position and to not be afraid to say that and define why some areas need more resources than others do. Um, if we're gonna lift everybody up, it doesn't happen with one move. It happens with you know a million little moves that we go and we figure out the unique needs of that place. So I think as people that are in this line of work or or working for cities that are listening to this, we have to move away from citywide broad brush policy, from boilerplate template approaches to doing things. We have to be willing to go into community, into neighborhood, work with neighborhoods, work with neighborhood organizations, and define the need place by place and craft a unique toolbox for those places. And the other thing is that we can have all the success we want with high rises and cranes and stuff going up. But at the end of the day, if we're still not addressing stabilized housing, jobs and job training opportunities, food access and food insecurity, education, if we're not tackling those basic needs that humans need to be able to lift themselves up, it's like, you know, my dad knew that I needed to thrive by welding a, a, a hitch on the back of my bike. He gave me a little tool, but he made me do the work. We just need to do, we need to be willing to go in and do those modifications, those those tools, those tweaks so that communities can thrive on their own. And um, until cities get that and are willing to do that, we're gonna continue to have the haves and the have nots growing further and further apart. So, you know, we eventually can get to the the pretty lights and the, and the nice things, but I think fundamentally we have to start at, at different starting points for every place.
0: One of my favorite questions to wrap up on is this idea of who else you think we should be paying attention to or, or who else is doing groundbreaking work out there. Um, and it's interesting because we actually had a conversation about this before we hopped on. Uh, this is a really difficult question for you to answer. And, and I want you to to dive into why that is because I think it's a an interesting take on what on the surface seems like a a pretty simple question, but you had a really eloquent way of of expressing to me why that was so difficult. So before we wrap up, why don't you uh, jump into that and we can take it from there?
1: Yeah, I. Um, it's so interesting how things catch you off guard. You know, as as we were talking about this conversation and preparing for it, and you had emailed me this question a while back, just as something to kind of start thinking about. And honestly, Chris, I just, I really, really struggled with it. I struggled with it up until last night, which is why I sent you a note this morning. And and I think it is that, you know, to be honest, I just am struggling with, with a place or a person or a philosophy to send people to in, in terms of who's doing groundbreaking work out there right now. Because frankly, I feel like in this very unique moment, unlike any other moment in the work that I've done, even you know people will compare this time to the 2008 recession. Nothing like that. you know So in this moment, in the work that I do, it just felt a little bit out of touch to uplift a single person or or people. when I think there are so so many people out there doing really hard work keeping communities afloat, keeping people afloat, Trying to tell important stories and narratives that have not had a space before. And I think right now we're in an incredibly profound moment of learning. You know, the groundbreaking work I think is coming and going to come. I think, you know, some of what I'm getting an opportunity to do in Las Vegas and other places will at some point be groundbreaking work that I think can inform other places. But we are right now in the trenches. We are figuring out how we deconstruct systems that don't work, that have held people back. And that work is all in motion. But as we are in the midst of the churn, I think we're all trying to figure out how to break ground um, to do things differently. And I also feel like, and I certainly feel this personally, I'm racing against the clock to change things before we just go back to status quo, which I think will be very easy for some leaders to do. Let's just get back to where we were and it'll all be fine. So, so my push, I guess my encouragement is you know, to this point and to the point that change happens at a neighborhood-based level and we have to fight for that and fight also not just for our neighborhoods, but go in and fight in the trenches with other neighborhoods who do not have the same resources or voice that maybe we do. People just need to get into the weeds right now. <laughs> you know, we have to go find the people and the organizations and the conversations that are happening in our cities right now, we have to take notice. And anything we can do to build support of and awareness for those things is incredibly important. And I also, I also just want to add, I, I am an avid reader of history books. I, I read presidential history. I read, I love understanding um, history. And mostly I do that. I am mostly immerse myself in that because understanding how we got to these places is the only way we understand how we get out of them. And so those would be my two words of advice, like whatever you're interested in, if you are interested in how we, why we did redlining in in, in certain neighborhoods and cities had less opportunity and became concentrated with poverty, then go read about redlining because there are ways to undo that and then go fight that fight that, at, you know, with the planning department, with your city council person, help build that argument and build that case. But we have to understand how we built this structure that's slightly dysfunctional or very dysfunctional in some cases, and then fight in unique individual fights one at a time to kind of start to undo that and build community back up.
0: Jamie, thank you so much for your time today. I mean, this is a a great deep dive into certainly your history, but then also just learning more about the state of affairs today and what you're up to and um, I think some really important topics to cover at this specific moment in time as well. Um, We're at the end of the road here and there's only really one more thing to do and that's to roll out the red carpet for you. And um, I know you're not super active on social media, but if listeners want to follow up and learn more about Centro, um, you on a personal level, and I know you have a TED Talk out there, uh, where are those couple of touch points that they can um, head to, to to find out more?
1: Yeah, I uh, you know, I'm on Facebook and Twitter at Jamie for Denver, J A M I E F O R uh, Denver. Um, I do post occasionally there and my website, which is uh bcentro.com. That's B-E-C-E-N-T-R-O.com. Um, and I, you know, I'll try to get more active. I kind of I stay out of the fray a little bit on social media. Um, I, I just like to put my head down and do the work sometimes, but also my TED talk, um. There's a TED Talk out there, uh, A a Love Affair with Cities that I did that I think shares also a bit of my story and what's inspired um, some of my work. So um, all of those places are good places to find me.
0: Yeah, and and that TED Talk was actually one of the first places that I uh, discovered your story, Jamie. And I'll I'll be sure to share that in the show notes for the listeners to take a look. Um, Once again, Jamie, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it.
0: Transforming Cities is brought to you by Authentic Form and Function, the digital design and development team that just might be a perfect fit for your next urban project. If you're a new listener, you can follow along at authenticff.com slash transformingcities, or you can simply subscribe through your favorite apps, including iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thanks for joining us.